Hallelujah. Well, last week we talked about temptation. And the reality is that all of us face temptation. And we talked about how being tempted is not actually a sin. But how many know sometimes we succumb to that temptation? And I thank God that we don't only get one shot. Amen? I thank God that if we screw up or we fail or we fall, that it's not over. Because uh, if that were the case, my salvation wouldn't have lasted very long, I don't think. Hallelujah. <laughs> Any of you guys seen the movie Robin Hood? The one with Kevin Costner back in the day? Yeah. Do you guys remember the scene where he was fighting in the river and he's, he's, uh, he's fighting little John? And he's just getting his butt kicked and then you have uh, Morgan Freeman, he plays the moor and as he's down he looks over to him and he says, he says, you got any ideas? And you guys remember what Morgan Freeman said? Get up, move faster. That was the advice. You know, I think that's good advice as Christians when you fall. Get up. That's the key. Getting up. We can't stay down. It's actually what I've titled the message is don't stay down. Because sometimes you're going to get knocked on the face and just knocked on your butt. And the problem is, is that, the, that if you don't get up, then you then you failed. But if you get up, you can't fail. The only way to fail as a Christian is to stay down, to walk away. Much like in boxing, how many know that if the boxer gets knocked to the mat, that's not the end of the fight? The end of the fight only happens if he doesn't get back up. But if he gets back up, the fight goes on. And the reality is, is the enemy wants you to stay down. The enemy doesn't want you to get back up. The reason is, is because that you're victorious in Christ. And he knows that. He knows that you already have the victory. So the only way that the devil can have any sort of victory with you is to somehow convince you to stay down. To not actually walk in the victory that you've been given. And the problem is, I think sometimes to stay down is just easier. Sometimes it just feels easier to stay down than to keep pressing through and dealing what you're dealing with. And I think the reason why sometimes it feels easier is because how many of them, when you're walking alongside the devil, he's not going to be pushing on you at all. Amen. It's when you're opposing him that you start feeling that opposition where you start seeing the temptation ramp up. And, and even though it might feel easier to stay down, if you want to continue in victory, you have to get back up. Amen? All right, Proverbs 24:16 is where we're going to go and start off. It says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. How many of you guys in this room are righteous? Raise your hand if you're righteous. All right, let me put your hands down. Put your hands up if you're saved. How many of you guys are saved? All right, now I want you to, nope, put your hands back up. Everybody, if you're saved, put your hands up. Now I just leave them up when I ask this question. How many in this room are righteous? That's awesome. You guys got it. If you are saved, you are righteous. You see, the, some of you guys didn't raise your hand because you were thinking in my head, like, no, nah, sometimes I mess up, sometimes I make a mistake, and you're like, I can't be right. But the reality is, is your righteousness has nothing to do with you. Thank God for that, Amen. If you're saved, you are righteous. 1 John 3, 3 says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
So if you're saved, if you hope in him, you're purified. Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. So that means if you believe, you have the righteousness of God. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You are justified, you are righteous, you are pure because of the work Jesus Christ did. Now if you've been here for a while, you know that I preach this a lot. Because I think that Christians need to get this through their head. In order to walk in victory, you have to realize that you're walking from victory. And if you've heard this before, it's let it sink in again. It should provide encouragement. It should strengthen your resolve. And if you've never heard this, I hope it's it, right now as you're hearing the word of God, it's building faith in you right now so that you understand and have a revelation of who you are in Christ. If you are saved, you are righteous. But here's the thing. Victory goes to those who persevere. You guys know who Walter Payton is? You ever heard of him? Famous football player. Just five foot ten, two hundred two pounds. He wasn't a very big guy, especially in today's NFL. <laughs> Walter Payton was not a particularly big running back for the National Football League, but he set one of the sport's greatest records, the all time rushing record, sixteen thousand seven hundred and twenty six yards. During his twelve year career, Payton carried the football over nine miles. And what is truly impressive, though, is that he was knocked to the ground on average every 4.4 yards. Every 4.4 yards of those nine miles, he was knocked on his butt by somebody bigger than he is. But he kept getting up, and he kept getting up, and he kept getting up. You see, great victories come to those who are willing to endure, to persevere, to keep getting back up. You see here it says the righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked man stumble in times of calamity. You see the difference between a righteous man, which we just talked about, is one who is saved, and the wicked man is one who is not saved, is that the, the wicked man stumbles and he just stays down. He doesn't get back up. If they were a Christian before, those are the ones that fall down and, and get, they just walk away from their salvation. They give up permanently. They, they just walk away. They give back what they've freely received. But I want you to understand that it's not the falling that makes you unrighteous. You can't do something bad enough for God to stop loving you. It is impossible. Now I'm not saying you won't face consequences in your life. For those types of things but you can't do anything for God to stop loving you and you can't do anything to have your salvation stolen away from you now I personally believe you can give it back freely you can walk away but you can't ever have it stolen from you it can't be taken from you as long as you get back up you'll never lose it Romans 8 38 to 39 says for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
be stolen from you. So the, the first thing that we have to understand is that the righteous person gets back up. The reality is that we're all going to face temptation, and at times we might even succumb to it. We might sin, we might fail. But you've only permanently failed if you don't give back up. Amen? In Psalms 37, 23 through 26, it says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Who does this refer to? The righteous, all of us, right? Those who are saved. I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. You know, the scripture says that the steps of a man are established by the Lord. That means that he will make a path for you. He will keep your way straight if you're just willing to keep your eyes on him, right? When he delights in his way. Psalm 66, 9 says, Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty amazing that God cares enough about me to take an interest in my life and help guide my path and guide my way. That is an incredible thing. We see that he delights in us when we do it according to his purpose. And he's like a, a, a proud dad that, that looks at his kid with great pride when they accomplish great things. For those of you who have children, you know that you're always there for your children. When they're learning to walk, you let them go, right? You let go of their hand and you let them take those, those first steps that they attempt, that they try on their own. But you never let them fall, fall or fail in such a way that they can never get back up again. You're always right there beside them to pick them up, to guide them. And, and, and if we're like that as parents, what makes you think God's going to be any worse a parent than you or I? If we can be parents with these qualities, we can expect an even greater level of parenthood from God. Now, for some of us who maybe didn't have good dads, this can be hard to see. You know, some of the hardest people to understand a loving God, a loving father, are people that have had real-world fathers that just weren't good to them. And if that's you, I would just encourage you, God is not like that. He is a good, good father. Amen. And then David goes on to say, I am young, but now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Now, this doesn't mean that David's never seen people hurting or having trouble. If you've just read the story of David, not only has David seen his people go through some pretty rough stuff at the hands of enemies and truthfully many times as a result of his own stupidity. So it's not that David has never seen people go through hard times or struggle or fall or fail or have problems, but he says, I've never seen them forsaken. And you should take courage in that. Even when you fall, even when you fail, even when you stumble, God is never going to forsake you because God never leaves those who are his. He's always there to help them back up and brush them off as long as they're willing to get back up. Amen? You'll look all throughout the Old Testament. Israel's problem was that they would, they would fall down and they would stay down for incredibly long periods of time. And then eventually they might repent for a little bit, but then they would do it all over again. 
But God was always there waiting for them. And the same is true for us. Now, ideally, you don't want to stumble. That's the goal, is to not stumble. But be encouraged that when you do, that God is there. He's, he's never leaving you. He's never forsaking you. He hasn't given up on you. He's not mad at you. And He certainly doesn't hate you. Amen? And then it goes on. He is ever lending generously and His children become a blessing. You know, this is one of the things I think that uh, many people don't understand, particularly parents who follow the Lord, is that God will bless even your children through you. One of the things that I thought was pretty amazing when my, uh, my wife's um, grandmother passed away, and this was several years ago, and we were at a, a uh, the, 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 what do they call that, the, not the funeral, the, it wasn't even a viewing. It was more like just a celebration of her life. You know, everyone gathered at church. I forget, I forget what that's called, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't the actual funeral. It was beforehand. We were just celebrating her life, and everyone had a chance to share. And, and, uh, um, but one of the young pastors that went to her church, he got up, and he looked out of the room, and almost everybody in her family were Christians. And he began to just talk about this legacy that she left. And you got to see that as God worked through her, how it impacted not just her, but generationally throughout her, her entire family. And it's an amazing thing. It's not just a one-off thing. It says that the righteous man, he's never forsaken, he is ever lending generously, and even his children become a blessing. Isn't that an amazing thing? That God, through you, will bless your children. And as long as you are training, and this isn't part of the message today, but something good to know, as long as you're training them and teaching them and raising them in the way that you go, you will see a generational blessing and legacy come through your willingness to serve and walk with the Lord. Amen? As we continue on in Hebrews 10, 23 through 26, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So the first part of this, I wanted to be clear with you that... that uh, I, your righteousness has nothing to do with you. So you can be confident and encouraged that if you fall, you are not somehow uh, stricken from God. You're not somehow unrighteousness. You're not a failure. As long as you're willing to get back up, understand that your righteousness has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God. But we talked about uh, the idea of, of, of what we want to do when we face these situations. What do we do when we fall? How, how do we, you know, one of the things that as I'm teaching, I always want to show us what's the practical application of what we're learning. So the first step is knowing who you are, and then the next step is talking about what do you do when you find yourself in those situations? How do you move forward? And the first thing here we learn is that we need to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So what is the confession of our hope as Christians? That confession is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. 
that he came and he died for the penalty of our sin. He rose again and in doing so gave us a brand new life. And with that new life, he has made us clean, he has made us pure, and he has made us holy. And here's the thing, God's promises are true. The thing I love about this is let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. We talked a little bit, uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this idea of blind faith. And uh, people say Christians are crazy for having blind faith. And, and I tend to agree, blind faith is a stupid thing, but we don't have blind faith. We have faith in someone who is faithful. And we can, we can have faith without wavering. We don't have to have blind faith because who we've put our faith in is sure. Amen? Amen. So that our, our confession of our hope is what helps us get through those situations when we do fall. That's part of getting back up. 1 John 4.15 says that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in him. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see, these are the things that we need to remember that if we find ourselves on our knees, begin to confess the reality of who you are in Christ that you are forgiven, that you are right, that you are pure. And then he goes on to say that we need to consider how to stir one another up, not neglecting to meet together. And what we see here is that we are to live in love and, and really live in good deeds, not as a way to gain favor with God, but uh, it's, it's how we should consider how we interact with one another and how we can encourage one another to do the same. And this comes from two aspects. One, we need to remember that because we are saved, we need to get up and live our lives in such a way. But when we see others down too, we can walk alongside them and encourage them. Remind them of who they are. If you see someone that has fallen, one of the, the worst things that we can do as Christians is point our fingers at them and, and their failures as long as they're willing to get back up. And instead, we remind them of, our, of their victory. If we all had this attitude, I think we'd live in an entirely different world. And we would have an entirely different reputation as Christians. Instead of pointing at people and kicking them when they're down, if we always came alongside people and lifted them up to help them get back on their feet, to walk in the reality of what Christ has done for them. That's why one of the the most misunderstood verses that you hear about is when people say, oh, I'm just speaking the truth to them in love. The truth is not that they failed. The truth is that they're victorious in Christ. When we speak the truth in love, we remind them of who they are in Christ, that they're set free from this stuff, not pointing at their failures. That's the truth in love. And that's where we find that church is such an important thing when you're walking with the Lord. That's why he says here, don't, don't uh, neglect the habit of meeting together as some. Because when we walk alongside one another, we can help each other up in those difficult situations. We can encourage one another. And being with like-minded individuals is so incredibly important for your growth. They've seen feral children, and, and feral children are, are children that have pretty much raised themselves. They have no interaction with other humans. 
And it doesn't happen all that often, but they do find them from time to time. And when they, when they find them and they try to reintegrate them back into society, they find out it's almost impossible to do because they never learned how to be human. This is what I read. It said, feral children lack the basic social skills that are normally learned in the process of enculturation. For example, they may be unable to learn to use a toilet or have trouble learning to walk upright after walking on all fours for all their life. And they display a complete lack of interest in human activity around them. They often seem mentally impaired or have almost insurmountable trouble learning a human language. The same thing can happen to Christians if they never spend any time with other Christians. You find yourself in a situation where you're not learning, you're not growing. Because you miss that interaction with one another. We need to help one another grow, amen? And then we'll deal with this last line here. Because that's what we're, we're talking about, right? Is falling into sin. And now there is a difference between sinning deliberately and falling into sin, right? But one of the things we see here is it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. How many know this is a pretty scary verse? When I first read this, it makes me nervous because there are times that I have stumbled and there are times that I've been more or less a little more deliberate about what I was doing. And this can be a scary verse. Because you think, man, if I sin after I'm saved, does that mean that I'm, I'm out of luck, that there's no way to get through it? And it's really easy to, to misunderstand, but when you understand what is being said, this is actually an incredible encouragement. And I encourage you to read the rest of this chapter so you can see it in context, what they're talking about here. But the point of what, what it's saying here is that it's not saying that if you mess up, there's, there's nothing you can do, that you're doomed. You know, like this idea that, that once you get saved, if you ever sin again, well, there's, there's no, nothing for you because if you're not careful, you can read that. It no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But the reality here is what, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to, to, to say, he's speaking to Jews, that now that you've heard the truth, if you go on sinning, understand there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Why not? Because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. You see, what he was dealing with with these people is that this idea that, that uh, once these Jewish people had heard the truth, they understood Jesus was the sacrifice, that sacrificing bulls, the, the bulls and goats from this point forth had no impact. Because once you understand that Jesus was the all in all, the once in time and for all sacrifice, there isn't any other sacrifice remaining for sin because he was the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. So the point that he's trying to make with them is don't go on sinning and, and, and living back in, in what you were doing. Now that you know about Jesus, you need to walk in that reality. So understand that, that if you've ever come across this, and the reason I left this up here is because you might have been reading the scripture with me as we're going through this, and you read that next verse, and I just wanted to make sure that we understand what is being said here. What is being said is that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for sin. So that means when you stumble, when you fall, Jesus already paid for it. Every single sin that you've ever committed and that you ever will commit has been covered by Jesus. 
he paid the penalty, and if you have received him, the penalty for your sin has been paid. But if you do not receive him, or if you turn away from him, then there's no other way to have your sins be atoned for. There is no other sacrifice for sin. He is the only one. Amen? Then in Hebrews 35-39, uh, it says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we who are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. You're going to notice that the idea here that I'm talking about is, the, is perseverance and it's endurance. When I say that you have to get back up, it's because you have to keep running the race. You have to keep in, uh, running without wavering. You can't give up. You've got to keep moving forward because it's the giving up that causes our failure. So the writer of Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence. And our confidence is that we are adequate before God. And we will receive our eternal reward, which is eternal life. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6 says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Our confidence is that we are sufficient before God because of what He did, not what we do. And it's with endurance that we're able to receive this promise. If we give up, if we stay down, it's the only way to lose this promise. But if we run with endurance, continue in the faith, then we have it. We find out here is that... Uh, the only way to displease God is by not having faith, continuing in faith. He says, my righteous one shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's by our faith and trusting in the finished works of Christ that we continue to, to, to please God because that's what he's looking for is our faith. And that's been from the beginning, right? Righteousness has always come by faith, even from, from Abraham. It says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was never what Abraham did, but because his faith in him. And you have to continue walking in that faith. Trusting God is what makes him pleased with you, and it's not about doing the right things. The reality is, is that we should be doing the right things as a result of his love for us, not as some way to gain his love or gain his favor. We already have that if we've put our trust in him. And understand that persevering, getting back up, keeping the faith, that's what leads to the preserving of our souls. In other words, that's what leads to eternal life is when we continue in the faith, we walk with him. And the key that we've been talking about is getting back up. But I have to give you a disclaimer with this. Because some people will hear this message and go, oh, that means I can do whatever I want then. I'm always forgiven. I can just do whatever I want. Acts 26.20 says, 
but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Freedom from sin and forgiveness of sin is not the freedom to sin. It's not the license to sin, amen? By faith, we are made righteous and pure. Even if we fall, we mess up, we're still righteous. But that doesn't mean that we can do whatever that we want. That was actually an issue that Paul dealt with with some of the early churches, right? He's, they're going, well, man, if, if God gives us grace and forgiveness when we sin, if I sin a lot, that'll really help God because then he'll be able to give a lot of grace. <coughs> right? That's one of the issues he dealt with. He says, guys, you're, you're missing the point. You're not free to sin. You're free from sin. Amen? But just because God loves us in spite of the things we do, that doesn't mean that we have the right to act foolish, to do whatever we want. The Scripture says that we should repent. And I think maybe that, that we get a wrong idea of repentance based on our understanding of the word in today's society. Our common viewpoint of the word repent is actually a little bit incorrect from a biblical point of view. Recent dictionaries that I've looked at, the, the first entry is always this, to feel or show that you are sorry for something bad or wrong that you did and that you want to do what is right. Our modern-day version of repentance has to do with feeling guilty or feeling ashamed and wanting to do the right thing. But biblically, repentance isn't about how you feel. This is the definition of biblical repentance, to turn from sin or to change one's mind. Now, you'll find that still in the dictionaries today, but it's usually down the list as possible options for, you know, you know sometimes you have multiple de definitions in a, in a dictionary list. From a biblical point of view, the repentance is doing a 180 degree turn. You were looking at sin. When you repent, you turn your back on sin and put your eyes on God. And if you somehow sin and you put your eyes back on sin, you'll realize that you're not looking at God anymore. You can't look at them both at the same time. So repentance is about turning from sin and towards God. And when you get saved, a miracle takes place inside of you. Too many people think that salvation is just about making a decision. Salvation is not about a decision that you made to do, the good, do right things or do good things. A miracle takes place when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. The spirit that you had, your old man, the dead that old man is dead and gone. He's removed, and you get a new life inside of you. You are brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, that you are a new creation in Christ. The Bible also says that the heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is put back in. This is a miraculous event that happens when you get saved. You're no longer who you used to be. You have a brand new life inside of you. And as a result... You should begin to do different things. You should begin to live in a different way. That's what it says here, right? He says they should repent and turn to God. That's the first step, turn away from sin toward God. But then you need to be performing deeds in keeping with your repentance. That means that your life looks different. You, you should not look like the person that you used to be. And I get it. For me, it was a slow burn. But at least I was moving forward. Some people, they get saved and their life instantly changes. That's not how it was with me. 
But every day I took steps forward. Every day I went more and more and more towards looking like Christ. And I still got a long way to go, but I'm going to keep moving in that direction. Amen. And to be clear, he's not saying that these deeds need to be done for you to have salvation. He doesn't say, what it says is the deeds are, are, are in keeping with your repentance. You've already repented, you've already, you're already saved. Your life is a result of that changing power inside of you. Amen. Because there should always be external evidence of internal change. You know, we, we may not ever understand, and, and when I, I, we, we will never understand or be able to judge a person's salvation. That is between them and God. But we can make some educated guesses from time to time. Because there should be a, a life that's changed, a, a life that's saved should begin to look different. We should see some external evidence. And this is why getting back up is so important. How many know that getting back up is evidence of that change? Every time you fall, get back up. And if you fall again, get back up. If you fall a third time, get back up. Fall a fifth time, get back up. You fall a hundredth time, get back up. Anybody noticing a theme? The key is to get back up. Turn back towards God. So let's take a few examples in Scripture of what happens when someone gets back up. Luke 11.32, it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh was the, the city that repented at Jonah's preaching. You guys know the story of Jonah? Everyone knows about the story of Jonah and the whale, right? And uh, uh, the, uh, Nineveh was a heathen nation. And the truth is, is that the Jews didn't like him. Jonah didn't like them. Jonah did not want to go preach to this city. Matter of fact, that's the whole reason why he gets swallowed by a whale, because God said, go preach to them and tell them to repent. And Jonah says, I don't want to because I don't want them to be saved. That was basically it. Jonah didn't like them. He didn't think they were deserving. He didn't want them to be saved, so he ran. Jesus. So then he gets swallowed by a whale, gets spit back on, on the shores, and he goes. And, and it's funny, the, probably the most successful preacher in all of the Bible didn't want to do it. Because this entire city responds to the message and gets saved. The entire city repented. They turned back towards God when they were facing away before. And it was not their good deeds that saved them, but it was their willingness to turn back towards God. They had been down and they decided to get back up. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you know what? We have an even greater reason to turn to God. It says, look, something greater than Jonah is here. We have Jesus and our assurance in him. And that should be encouragement enough for us to always get back up. Amen. Judges 16, 28 through 30, we're going to talk about Samson. It says, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against him and his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. 
And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Samson is another very famous story in the Bible. You probably all know the story. And uh, basically, Samson turned his back on the purpose of God for his life because of a girl. And actually, if you look at what happened, this was actually just the last straw in Samson's life. It wasn't that she was a girl that was a problem. It was, she was a Philistine, by the way. I guess it would have been a problem if it was a Philistine guy. But anyway, you guys are distracting me. I'm trying to get back on track here. <laughs> but this situation was the last straw. He kept doing his th things his way. You see, he had fallen a long time ago, but he never got back up. One thing we should encourage is look how much patience God had with him. God is so patient with us, waiting for us to get back up. Amen. But he had fallen and not gotten back up. Judges 13, 13 through 14, it says, And the angel said, or the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all, the, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful that she may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or any, or drink or eat any unclean things, all that I commanded her, let her observe. This list of things was the requirements of a uh, Nazarene, a Nazarite. And that's what Samson was. And while, even while she was, his mom was pregnant with him, she couldn't do any of these things, right? So uh, can't eat anything that comes from the vine, no wine or strong drink, or eat anything that's unclean. And if you look back at Samson's life, you're going to see that, that this is how his story starts unraveling. He's walking through a grape field. He's not even supposed to touch anything from the vine. He's making his way through a grape field. And along the way, he sees a, a lion dead on the ground. So he's not supposed to touch anything that's unclean. So what's he do? And I, <laughs> This has got to be the grossest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. But apparently some bees took up shop inside this lion carcass start making honey, and he decides that I'm a little hungry. I'm going to have some of this honey. And I don't have to have a rule about not touching anything unclean. I don't think I'm eating that honey. That's just kind of gross to me. But he goes ahead and, and touches something that's dead, which makes him unclean. So he's walking through a grape field when he shouldn't be anywhere near anything that has to do with the vine. He touches this dead lion, and then he goes ahead, and, and, and he, this all happens on his way to meet a Philistine girl. He's trying to claim her as his wife. I mean, he's just doing everything that God doesn't want him to do, period. However, even when he turned his back to God, and we know the story, right? He finally tells uh, Delilah how to, to steal his strength. She cuts his hair. And uh, he's got to be the dumbest guy on the planet. How do you not notice the first three times what she's trying to accomplish? But anyway... Not all men are known for their intelligence. Apparently, Samson was none of them. <laughs> anyway, he, uh, he goes ahead and, and, and gets, uh, gets his strength taken away. He gets captured. He gets his eyes gouged out. And, and they're at this big meeting with all the, the Philistine lords, and he's basically brought out to taunt him, to make fun of him, to show how the mighty had fallen. And you would think that after all that's happened, God has surely forsaken him. God is surely not with him. Because he's fallen so far. But even after all this, even after failure, 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 God is still with him when he decides to get back up. 
He may have turned from God, but God never turned from him. God never forsook him. He was, he was always there waiting. And then Samson was once more victorious in his death. Amen? Paul says it like this, Philippians 3.12-14, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He is a man who, from, I think, our perspective, might have been the greatest apostle. And even he says he's not attained it yet. This should uh, give us great comfort because we realize that Paul is really just like us. He had to press on. He had to endure. He had to persevere. When he fell, he had to get back up. And the truth is, is that even though we often see our leaders or the people in the Bible or even pastors or other leaders in the church, we see them as somehow super saints. They're just like you and me. They're no different. They go through the, the same issues. They struggle sometimes. They stumble sometimes. They have lapse of faith. But that means that we can do it just like them. I mean, David's a great example of this. David was a man who God considered as one after his own heart, yet he messed up plenty of times. But he got back up eventually. So when Paul's talking about this, when he says that I'm not perfect yet, but I press on, he's not talking about his standing before Christ. Spiritually, we have been made perfect because Jesus is living inside of us. One of the greatest evidences, I believe, that you are perfect, that you are pure, that you're righteous, is the fact that Jesus takes up residence inside your heart, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Because the Holy Spirit cannot occupy the same space as something that is not righteous. It would just destroy it. I think the Holy Spirit living inside of us is evidence that we've been made righteous because of his finished work. However, even though that's been accomplished inside of us spiritually, it doesn't always happen immediately on the outside. Sometimes our body has to grow into the reality of the spiritual. Amen. So Paul says, I, 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 I forget what lies behind. I'm not going to get wrapped up. Basically says, I'm going to get back up. I forget what lies behind. And Paul had some pretty stuff, big stuff to forget. If we're going to the book of Acts in our Bible study, we see that, that uh, as far as the early church is concerned, Paul is not a very loved person, at least in the beginning. He's dragging people out of their homes. He's imprisoning them. He's killing them. He was, he was approving and, and happy that Stephen got stoned. I mean, he wasn't a good dude. But Paul says, I forget what lies behind. I get back up. I persevere. I continue running. I keep pressing forward. And when he says this, it's not the same as not remembering what happens. We don't forget it in the sense of we just act like it doesn't happen. But what we do is we don't let it influence our future decisions. The reality is, is Christianity is a, is a religion about looking forward. You can't fix what happened yesterday, but you can change what's going to happen tomorrow. Amen? So you look forward. 
And this goes for the bad stuff and the good stuff as well. Sometimes we have bad stuff that happens. We fall, we fail. You get back up and you, you turn away from that. You turn away from that sin. You look back towards God and you, you worry about what's going to happen today and tomorrow because you can't change that. But you get back up. But it also doesn't just mean the, the, the bad stuff. It means the good stuff too. Personally, I believe that there are, the reason there are so many denominations is because there are entire groups of Christians who get stuck on what God was doing at one time and they stop moving forward with what God was wanting to do in the future. They get stuck where they were. They're so concerned about what God did with them years ago that they're not seeing what God wants to do now. And we can, that can happen to us personally as well. But I know for me, I don't want to, to be the guy who always talks about what God used to do through me. I, let that stuff go behind you too. Look to the future, amen? What we say about ourselves is important as well. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What does this mean? If we don't stumble in what we say. We may stumble in other areas, but if we don't stumble in what we say. A part of moving forward is, is like we talked about getting back up. But what do we do when we've done something that has the ability to cause so much guilt and shame in our life? You see, that's a problem that happens when we fail is we, we all too easily get focused on our failure. <laughs> and, and I think that the devil loves that as well. When he makes you fall, which is, is, you know, when on his part, but then he gets you so focused on your failure that you forget to stop, start looking at God as well. So when these things happen, we need to begin to, like we talked about earlier, realize that we are forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when some of us read this, it, it can cause some, some confusion. First off, you're thinking, man, what about sins that I forgot about? So, so they're, they're, uh, when it's talking about this confession, I don't believe it's talking about laying down at night and, and having your list of every failure and, and making sure that you confess them towards God. Another way to look at confess, to confess something, is to say the same thing about something. And what that means is we need to say the same thing about sin that God says about our sin. So if you remember sin, by all means, you need to talk to God about it. Thank Him that you're forgiven from it. Deal with it. But don't be so worried that if there's you know, some sin that you, that you did, you didn't realize it or you forgot about, that you were somehow not going to be forgiven of that sin. Instead, just confess your sin, say the same thing about your sin that God does. Which means, thank you God that I am forgiven. Thank you that I am clean. When I sin, I stopped asking God to forgive me for my sin a long time ago. Because the reality is, is He already has. I just thank Him that I'm forgiven now. When I stumble and I fall on something, I don't say, God, please forgive me for this. I just say, thank you Lord that you have forgiven me for this. And I get up and I move forward. We need to say that we're forgiven. We need to declare, confess with our mouths that we are clean, that we are righteous. We need to declare and confess with our mouths that sin no longer has any control over us because we've been set free from that bondage. But when we start saying other things, 
can't believe I'm so stupid. I can't believe I messed up again. I'm the worst Christian ever. How could God even love me? I can't believe I did this. That's, that's not the things that we need to say with our mouth. The problem is, is, is you need to not stumble in what you say. When you start repeating what the devil is saying about you, you're giving power to him. Instead, repeat what God says about you. Instead of looking back, look ahead to God. Amen? And then we'll end here. Ephesians 4, 20-24. So this is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness in holiness. Like I said earlier, when we hear the gospel, something changes in us. When we respond to the truth of the gospel, when we get saved, at that moment a miracle takes place inside of us. The old spirit is removed and a new spirit is put inside of us. And it's not just an intellectual decision to live a better life. Every other religion in the world is, is an intellectual decision. Christianity is different. It's about the saving power of God. We are fundamentally and supernaturally changed when we say yes to Jesus. And when this happens, we put away the old man. We put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life. You see, before you got saved, that was your only option, was to live out of the old man. But now we can put that old man behind us because we have been set free. We have been made righteous. We can live from a different source, a different foundation, which is putting on the new self, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he says, Paul also reminds us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. You see, we can be completely clean on the inside, but if our minds are unrenewed, we begin to slip back into that old way, that old manner of life. That's why it's so important to spend time in your word, to let your mind be renewed, to understand so you can know and have a revelation of who you are in Christ, so that when you do stumble, you can confess those things about yourself. How are you supposed to confess that I am righteous, forgiven, and free if you've never actually read about that truth that where it says it clearly in the Scripture? Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, with renewed minds, we can put on that new self. We learn who we really are in Christ, and we can finally live that out in our lives. So if we fall down, get back up, put on the new self again, and move forward. Because church, the only way to fail is to stay down. Amen?